How He Lied to Her Husband by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How He Lied to Her Husband by George Bernard Shaw. He read by M.B. She read by Dana Meilinger. Her Husband read by Bob Gonzalez. Narrated by Ariel Lipshaw. It is eight o'clock in the evening. The curtains are drawn and the lamps lighted in the drawing-room of her flat in Cromwell Road. Her lover, a beautiful youth of eighteen, in evening dress and cape, with a bunch of flowers and an opera hat in his hands, comes in alone. The door is near the corner, and as he appears in the doorway he has the fireplace on the nearest wall to his right, and the grand piano along the opposite wall to his left. Near the fireplace a small ornamental table has on it a hand-mirror, a fan, a pair of long white gloves, and a little white woolen cloud to wrap a woman's head in. On the other side of the room, near the piano, is a broad, square, softly upholstered stool. The room is furnished in the most approved South Kensington fashion. That is, it is as like a showroom as possible, and is intended to demonstrate the racial position and spending powers of its owners, and not in the least to make them comfortable. He is, be it repeated, a very beautiful youth, moving as in a dream, walking as on air. He puts his flowers down carefully on the table beside the fan, takes off his cape, and, as there is no room on the table for it, takes it to the piano, puts his hat on the cape, crosses to the hearth, looks at his watch, puts it up again, notices the things on the table, lights up as if he saw heaven opening before him, goes to the table and takes the cloud in both hands, nestling his nose into its softness and kissing it, kisses the gloves one after another, kisses the fan, gasps a long shuddering sigh of ecstasy, sits down on the stool and presses his hands to his eyes to shut out reality and dream a little, takes his hands down and shakes his head with a little smile of rebuke for his folly, catches sight of a speck of dust on his shoes, and hastily and carefully brushes it off with his handkerchief, rises and takes the hand-mirror from the table to make sure of his tie with the gravest anxiety, and is looking at his watch again when she comes in, much flustered. As she is dressed for the theatre, has spoilt petted ways, and wears many diamonds, she has an air of being a young and beautiful woman, but as a matter of hard fact she is, dress and pretensions apart, a very ordinary South Kensington female of about thirty-seven, hopelessly inferior in physical and spiritual distinction to the beautiful youth, who hastily puts down the mirror as she enters. Kissing her hand. At last. Henry, something dreadful has happened. What's the matter? I have lost your poems. Ah, oh, they were unworthy of you. I will write you some more. No, thank you. Never any more poems for me. Oh, how could I have been so mad, so rash, so imprudent? Thank heaven for your madness, your rashness, your imprudence. Oh, be sensible, Henry. Can't you see what a terrible thing this is for me? Suppose anybody finds these poems, what will they think? They will think that a man once loved a woman more devotedly than ever man loved woman before. But they will not know what man it was. What good is that to me, if everybody will know what woman it was? But how will they know? How will they know? Why, my name is all over them, my silly, unhappy name. 
oh if i had only been christian mary jane or gladys muriel or beatrice or francesca or guinevere or something quite common but aurora aurora i'm the only aurora in london and everybody knows it i believe i'm the only aurora in the world and it's so horribly easy to rhyme to it oh henry why didn't you try to restrain your feelings a little in common consideration for me why didn't you write with some little reserve write poems to you with reserve you ask me that with perfunctory tenderness yes dear of course it was very nice of you and i know it was my own fault as much as yours i ought to have noticed that your verses ought never to have been addressed to a married woman ah how i wish they had been addressed to an unmarried woman how i wish they had indeed you have no right to wish anything of the sort they are quite unfit for anybody but a married woman that's just the difficulty what will my sisters-in-law think of them painfully jarred uh, have you got sisters-in-law yes of course i have do you suppose i am an angel biting his lips i do heaven help me i do or i did or he almost chokes a sob, softening and putting her hand caressingly on his shoulder. Listen to me, dear. It's very nice of you to live with me in a dream, and to love me, and so on. But I can't help my husband having disagreeable relatives, can I? Brightening up. Of course they are your husband's relatives. I forgot that. Forgive me, Aurora. He takes her hand from his shoulder and kisses it. She sits down on the stool. He remains near the table, with his back to it, smiling fatuously down at her. The fact is, Teddy's got nothing but relatives. He has eight sisters and six half-sisters, and ever so many brothers. But I don't mind his brothers. Now, if you only knew the least little thing about the world, Henry, you'd know that in a large family, though the sisters quarrel with one another like mad all the time, yet let one of the brothers marry, and they all turn on their unfortunate sister-in-law, and devote the rest of their lives with perfect anonymity to persuading him that his wife is unworthy of him. They can do it to her very face without her knowing it, because there are always a lot of stupid low family jokes that nobody understands but themselves. Half the time you can't tell what they are talking about. It just drives you wild. There ought to be a law against a man's sister ever entering his house after he's married. I'm as certain as that I'm sitting here, that Georgina stole those bones out of my work-box. She will not understand them, I think. Oh, won't she? She'll understand them only too well. She'll understand more harm than ever was in them. Nasty, vulgar-minded cat. Going to her. Oh, don't! Don't think of people in that way. D don't think of her at all. He takes her hand and sits down on the carpet at her feet. Aurora! Do you remember the evening when I sat here at your feet and read you those poems for the first time? I shouldn't have let you. I see that now. When I think of Georgina sitting there at Teddy's feet and reading them to him for the first time, I feel I shall just go distracted. Yes, you are right. It will be a profanation. Oh, I don't care about the profanation. But what will Teddy think? What will he do? Suddenly throwing his head away from her knee. You don't seem to think a bit about Teddy. She jumps up, more and more agitated. Supine on the floor, for she has thrown him off his balance. Oh, to me, Teddy is nothing, and Georgina less than nothing. You'll soon find out how much less than nothing she is. 
if you think a woman can't do any harm because she's only a scandal-mongering dowdy ragbag you're greatly mistaken she flounces about the room he gets up slowly and dusts his hands suddenly she runs to him and throws herself into his arms henry help me find a way out of this for me oh how wretched i am she sobs on his breast and oh how happy i am whisking herself abruptly away don't be selfish humbly yes i deserve that i think that if i were going to the stake with you i should still be so happy with you that i could hardly feel your danger more than my own relenting and patting his hand fondly oh you are a dear darling boy henry but throwing his hand away fretfully you're no use i want somebody to tell me what to do with quiet conviction your heart will tell you at the right time i have thought deeply over this and i know what we two must do sooner or later no henry i will do nothing improper nothing dishonourable she sits down plump on the stool and looks inflexible if you did you would no longer be aurora our course is perfectly simple perfectly straightforward perfectly stainless and true we love one another i am not ashamed of that i am ready to go out and proclaim it to all london as simply as i will declare it to your husband when you see as you soon will see that this is the only way honourable enough for your feet to tread let us go out together to our own house this evening without concealment and without shame remember we owe something to your husband we are his guests here he is an honourable man he has been kind to us he has perhaps loved you as well as his prosaic nature and his sordid commercial environment permitted we owe it to him in all honour not to let him learn the truth from the lips of a scandal-monger let us go now quietly hand in hand bid him farewell and walk out of the house without concealment and subterfuge freely and honestly in full honour and self-respect staring at him and where shall we go to we shall not depart by a hair's breadth from the ordinary natural current of our lives we were going to the theatre when the loss of the poems compelled us to take action at once we shall go to the theatre still but we shall leave your diamonds here for we cannot afford diamonds and do not need them i have told you already that i hate diamonds only teddy insists on hanging me all over with them you need not preach simplicity to me i never thought of doing so dearest i know that these trivialities are nothing to you what was i saying oh yes instead of coming back here from the theatre you will come with me to my home now and henceforth our home and in due course of time when you are divorced we shall go through whatever idle legal ceremony you may desire i attach no importance to the law my love was not created in me by the law nor can it be bound or loosed by it that is simple enough and sweet enough is it not he takes the flower from the table here are the flowers for you i have the tickets we will ask your husband to lend us the carriage to show that there is no malice no grudge between us come spiritlessly taking the flowers without looking at them and temporizing teddy isn't in yet well let us take that calmly let us go to the theatre as if nothing had happened and tell him when we come back now or three hours hence to-day or to-morrow what does it matter provided all is done in honour without shame or fear what did you get tickets for lohengrin i tried but lohengrin was sold out for to-night he takes out two court theatre tickets then what did you get can you ask me 
what is there besides lohengrin that we two could endure except candida springing up candida no i won't go to it again henry tossing the flower on the piano it is that play that has done all the mischief i'm very sorry i ever saw it it ought to be stopped aurora yes i mean it that divinest love poem the poem that gave us courage to speak to one another that revealed to us what we really felt for one another that just so it put a lot of stuff into my head that i should never have dreamt of for myself i imagined myself just like candida catching her hands and looking earnestly at her you were right you are like candida snatching her hands away oh stuff and i thought you were just like eugene looking critically at him now that i come to look at you you are rather like him too she throws herself discontentedly into the nearest seat which happens to be the bench at the piano he goes to her aurora if candida had loved eugene she would have gone out into the night with him without a moment's hesitation henry do you know what's wanting in that play <laughs> there is nothing wanting in it yes there is there's georgina wanting in it if georgina had been there to make trouble that play would have been a true-to-life tragedy. Now I'll tell you something about it that I have never told you before. What is that? I took Teddy to it. I thought it would do him good, and so it would if only I could have kept him awake. Georgina came too, and you should have heard the way she went on about it. She said it was downright immoral, and that she knew the sort of woman that encourages boys to sit on the hearthrug and make love to her. She was just preparing Teddy's mind to poison it about me now let us be just to georgina dearest let her deserve it first just to georgina indeed she really sees the world in that way that is her punishment how can it be her punishment when she likes it it will be my punishment when she brings that budget of poems to teddy i wish you'd have some sense and sympathize with my position a little going away from the piano and beginning to walk about rather testily my dear i really don't care about georgina or about teddy all these squabbles belong to a plane on which i am as you say no use i have counted the cost and i do not fear the consequences after all what is there to fear where is the difficulty what can georgina do what can your husband do what can anybody do do you mean to say that you propose that we should walk right bang up to teddy and tell him we are going away together yes what can be simpler and do you think for a moment he would stand it, like a half-baked clergyman in the play? He'd just kill you. Coming to a sudden stop and speaking with considerable confidence. You don't understand these things, my darling, how could you? In one respect I am unlike the poet in the play. I have followed the Greek ideal and not neglected the culture of my body. Your husband would make a tolerable second-rate heavyweight if he were in training and ten years younger. As it is, he could, if strung up to a great effort by a burst of passion, give a good account of himself for perhaps fifteen seconds. But I am active enough to keep out of his reach for fifteen seconds, and after that I should be simply all over him. Rising and coming to him in consternation. What do you mean by all over him? Don't ask me, dearest. At all events, I swear to you that you need not be anxious about me. And what about Teddy? Do you mean to tell me that you are going to beat Teddy before my face like a brutal prize-fighter? All this alarm is needless, dearest. Believe me, nothing will happen. Your husband knows I am capable of defending myself. Under such circumstances nothing ever does happen. And, of course, I shall do nothing. 
The man who once loved you is sacred to me. Doesn't he love me still? Has he told you anything? No, no. He takes her tenderly in his arms. Oh, dearest, dearest, how agitated you are, how unlike yourself. All these worries belong to the lower plane. Come up with me to the higher one, the heights, the solitudes, the soul-world. Avoiding his gaze. No, stop. It's no use, Mr. Abjohn. Recoiling. Mr. Abjohn? Excuse me, I meant Henry, of course. How could you even think of me as Mr. Apjohn? I never think of you as Mrs. Bompus. It is always can't, I mean, Aurora. Aurora, Aurora. Yes, yes, that's all very well, Mr. Apjohn. He is about to interrupt again, but she won't have it. No, it's no use. I've suddenly begun to think of you as Mr. Apjohn, and it's ridiculous to go on calling you Henry. I thought you were only a boy, a child, a dreamer. I thought you would be too much afraid to do anything. And now you want to beat Teddy, and to break up my home, and disgrace me, and make a horrible scandal in the papers. It's cruel, unmanly, cowardly. With grave wonder. Are you afraid? Oh, of course I'm afraid. So you would be, if you had any common sense. She goes to the hearth, turning her back to him, and puts one tapping foot on the fender, watching her with great gravity. Perfect love casteth out fear. That is why I am not afraid. Mrs. Bompus, you do not love me. Turning to him with a gasp of relief. Oh, thank you, thank you. You really can be very nice, Henry. Why do you thank me? Coming prettily to him from the fireplace. For calling me Mr. Bompus again. I feel now that you are going to be reasonable and behave like a gentleman. He drops on the stool, covers his face with his hand, and groans. What's the matter? Once or twice in my life I have dreamed that I was exquisitely happy and blessed. But, oh, the misgiving at the first stir of consciousness, the stab of reality, the prison walls of the bedroom, the bitter, bitter disappointment of waking. And this time, oh, this time I thought I was awake. Listen to me, Henry. We really haven't time for all that sort of flapdoodle now. He starts to his feet as if she had pulled a trigger and straightened him by the release of a powerful spring, and goes past her with set teeth to the little table. Oh, take care. You nearly hit me in the chin with the top of your head. With fierce politeness. I beg your pardon? What is it you want me to do? I am at your service. I am ready to behave like a gentleman if you will be kind enough to explain exactly how. A little frightened. Thank you, Henry. I was sure you would. You're not angry with me, are you? Go on. Go on, quickly. Give me something to think about, or I will—I will— He suddenly snatches up her fan and is about to break it in his clenched fists, running forward and catching at the fan with loud lamentation. Don't break my fan. No, don't. He slowly relaxes his grip of it as she draws it anxiously out of his hands. No, really, that's a stupid trick. I don't like that. You've no right to do that. She opens the fan and finds that the sticks are disconnected. Oh, how could you be so inconsiderate? I, I beg your pardon. I will buy you a new one. You will never be able to match it, and it was a peculiar favorite of mine. Then you'll have to do without it, that's all. That's not a very nice thing to say after breaking my fat fan, I think. If you knew how near I was to breaking Teddy's pet wife and presenting him with the pieces, you would be thankful that you were alive instead of, of, of howling about five shillings worth of ivory. Damn your fan! 
oh don't you dare swear in my presence one would think you were my husband again collapsing on the stool this is some horrible dream what has become of you you are not my aurora oh well if you come to that what has become of you do you think i would ever have encouraged you if i had known you were such a little devil don't drag me down don't don't help me find the way back to the heights kneeling beside him and pleading if you would only be reasonable henry if you would only remember that i am on the brink of ruin and do not go on calmly saying that it's all quite simple it seems so to me jumping up distractedly if you say that again i shall do something i'll be sorry for here we are standing on the edge of a frightful precipice no doubt it's quite simple to go over and have done with it but can't you suggest anything more agreeable i can suggest nothing now a chill black darkness has fallen i can see nothing but the ruins of our dream he rises with a deep sigh can't you well i can i can see georgina rubbing those poems into teddy facing him determinedly and i tell you henry abjan that you got me in this mess and you must get me out of it again polite and hopeless all i can say is that i'm entirely at your service what do you wish me to do do you know anybody else named aurora no there is no use in saying no in that frozen pig-headed way you must know some aurora or other somewhere you said you were the only aurora in the world and lifting his clasped fists with a sudden return of his emotion you were the only aurora in the world to me he turns away from her hiding his face petting him yes yes dear of course it's very nice of you and i appreciate it indeed i do but it's not reasonable just at present now just listen to me i suppose you know all those poems by heart yes by heart raising his head and looking at her with a sudden suspicion don't you well i never can remember verses and besides i've been so busy that i've not had time to read them all though i intend to the very first moment i can get i promise you that most faithfully henry but now try to remember very particularly does the name of bompas occur in any of the poems no you're quite sure of course i'm quite sure how can i use such a name in a poem well i don't see why not it rhymes with rumpus which seems appropriate enough at present godness knows however you're a poet and you ought to know what does it matter now it matters a lot i can tell you if there's nothing about bompas in the poems we can say that they were written to some other aurora and that you showed them to me because my name was aurora too so you've got to invent another aurora for the occasion oh if you wish me to tell a lie surely as a man of honour as a gentleman you wouldn't tell the truth would you oh very well you have broken my spirit and desecrated my dreams i will lie and protest and stand on my honour oh i will play the gentleman never fear yes put it all on me of course don't be mean henry rousing himself with an effort oh you are quite right mrs bompas i beg your pardon you must excuse my temper i've got growing pains i think growing pains well the process of growing from romantic boyhood into cynical maturity usually takes fifteen years when it is compressed into fifteen minutes the pace is too fast and growing pains are the result oh is it a time for cleverness it's settled isn't it that you're going to be nice and good and that you'll brazen it out to teddy that you have some other aurora yes i'm capable of anything now 
I should not have told him the truth by halves, and now I will not lie by halves. I'll wallow in the honour of a gentleman. Dearest boy, I knew you would. I— Shh. She rushes to the door and holds it ajar, listening breathlessly. What is it? White with apprehension. It's steady. I hear him tapping the new barometer. He can't have anything serious in his mind, or he wouldn't do that. Perhaps Georgina hasn't said anything. She steals back to the hearth. Try and look as if there was nothing the matter. Give me my gloves, quick. He hands them to her. She pulls on one hastily and begins buttoning it with ostentatious unconcern. Go further away from me, quick. He walks doggedly away from her until the piano prevents his going farther. If I button my glove and you were to hum a tune, don't you think that— The tableau would be complete in its guiltiness. For heaven's sake, Mrs. Bombus, let that glove alone. You look like a pickpocket. Her husband comes in, a robust, thick-necked, well-groomed city man, with a strong chin but a blithering eye and credulous mouth. He has a momentous air, but shows no sign of displeasure, rather the contrary. Hello. I thought you two were at the theatre. I felt anxious about you, Teddy. Why didn't you come home to dinner? I got a message from Georgina. She wanted me to go to her. Poor dear Georgina. I'm sorry I haven't been able to call on her this last week. I hope there's nothing the matter with her. Nothing, except anxiety for my welfare and yours. She steals a terrified look at Henry. By the way, Apjohn, I should like a word with you this evening, if Aurora can spare you for a moment. I am at your service. No hurry. After the theatre will do. We have decided not to go. Indeed. Well, then, shall we adjourn to my snuggery? You needn't move. I shall go and look up my diamonds, since I'm not going to the theatre. Give me my things. As he hands her the cloud in the mirror. Well, we shall have more room here. Looking about him and shaking his shoulders loose. I think I should prefer plenty of room. So, if it's not disturbing you, Rory? Not at all. She goes out. When the two men are alone together, Bompas deliberately takes the poems from his breast pocket, looks at them reflectively, then looks at Henry, mutely inviting his attention. Henry refuses to understand, doing his best to look unconcerned. Do these manuscripts seem at all familiar to you, may I ask? Manuscripts? Yes. Would you like to look at them a little closer? He proffers them under Henry's nose as with a sudden illumination of glad surprise. Why, these are my poems. So I gather. Oh, what a shame. Mrs. Bombus has shown them to you. You must think me an utter ass. I wrote them years ago after reading Swinburne's songs before sunrise. Nothing would do me then, but I must reel off a set of songs to the sunrise. Aurora, you know, the rosy-fingered Aurora. They're all about Aurora. When Mrs. Bompas told me her name was Aurora, I couldn't resist the temptation to lend them to her to read. But I didn't bargain for your unsympathetic eyes. Grinning. Apjohn, that's really very ready of you. You are cut out for literature, and the day will come when Rory and I will be proud to have you about the house. I have heard far thinner stories from much older men. With an air of great surprise. Do you mean to imply that you don't believe me? Do you expect me to believe you? Why not? I, I don't understand. Come, don't underrate your own cleverness, Apjohn. I think you understand pretty well. I assure you I am quite at a loss. Can you not be a little more explicit? Don't overdo it, old chap. However, 
I will be just so far explicit as to say that if you think these poems read as if they were addressed not to a live woman, but to a shivering cold time of day at which you are never out of bed in your life, you hardly do justice to your own literary powers, which I admire and appreciate, mind you, as much as any man. Come, own up. You wrote these poems to my wife. An internal struggle prevents Henry from answering. Of course you did. He throws the poems on the table and goes to the hearthrug, where he plants himself solidly, chuckling a little and waiting for the next move. Mr. Bumpus, I pledge you my word you are mistaken. I need not tell you that Mrs. Bumpus is a lady of stainless honour, who has never cast an unworthy thought on me. The fact that she has shown you my poems— That's not a fact. I came by them without her knowledge. She didn't show them to me. Does not that prove their perfect innocence? She would have shown them to you at once if she had taken your quite unfounded view of them. Apjohn, play fair. Don't abuse your intellectual gifts. Do you really mean that I am making a fool of myself? Believe me, you are. I assure you, on my honour as a gentleman, that I have never had the slightest feeling for Mrs. Bombus beyond the ordinary esteem and regard of a pleasant acquaintance. Shortly, showing ill-humour for the first time. Oh, indeed! He leaves his hearth and begins to approach Henry slowly, looking him up and down with growing resentment, hastening to improve the impression made by his mendacity. I should never have dreamt of writing poems to her. The thing is absurd. Reddening ominously. Why is it absurd? Shrugging his shoulders. Well, it happens that I do not admire Mrs. Bompus. In that way. Breaking out in Henry's face. Let me tell you that Mrs. Bompus has been admired by better men than you, you soapy-headed little puppy, you. Much taken aback. There, there is no need to insult me like this, I assure you, on my honour as a— Too angry to tolerate a reply, and boring Henry more and more towards the piano. You don't admire Mrs. Bompus. You would never dream of writing poems to Mrs. Bompus. My wife's not good enough for you, isn't she? Who are you, pray, that you should be so jolly superior? Mr. Bompus, I can make allowances for your jealousy. Jealousy? Do you suppose I'm jealous of you? No, nor of ten like you. But if you think I'll stand here and let you insult my wife in her own house, you're mistaken. Very uncomfortable with his back against the piano and Teddy standing over him threateningly. How can I convince you? Be reasonable. I tell you my relations with Mrs. Bombus are relations of perfect coldness, of indifference. Say it again. Say it again. You're proud of it, aren't you? Yeah, you're not worth kicking. Henry suddenly executes the feat known to pugilists as dipping and changes sides with Teddy, who is now between Henry and the piano. Look here, I I'm not going to stand this. Oh, you have some blood in your body after all. Good job. This is ridiculous. I assure you, Mrs. Bompus is quite— What is Mrs. Bompus to you, I'd like to know? I'll tell you what Mrs. Bompus is. She's the smartest woman in the smartest set in South Kensington and the handsomest and the cleverest and the most fetching to experienced men who know a good thing when they see it, whatever she may be to conceited, penny-aligning puppies who think nothing good enough for them. It's admitted by the best people, and not to know it argues yourself unknown. 
three of our first actor managers have offered her a hundred a week if she'd go on the stage when they start a repertory theatre, and I think they know what they're about as well as you. The only member of the present cabinet that you might call a handsome man has neglected the business of the country to dance with her, though he don't belong to our set as a regular thing. One of the first professional poets in Bedford Park wrote a sonnet to her worth all your amateur trash. At Ascot last season, the eldest son of a duke excused himself from calling on me, on the ground that his feelings for Mrs. Bumpus were not consistent with his duty to me as host, and it did him honour, and me too. But she isn't good enough for you, it seems. You regard her with coldness, with indifference, and you have the cool cheek to tell me so to my face. For two pins I'd flatten your nose in to teach you manners, introducing a fine woman to you as casting pearls before swine. Before swine, you hear? With a deplorable lack of polish. You call me a swine again, and I'll land you one on the chin that'll make your head sing for a week. What? He charges at Henry with bull-like fury. Henry places himself on guard in the manner of a well-taught boxer, and gets away smartly but unfortunately forgets the stool which is just behind him. He falls backwards over it, unintentionally pushing it against the shins of Bumpus, who falls forward over it. Mrs. Bumpus, with a scream, rushes into the room between the sprawling champions, and sits down on the floor in order to get her right arm round her husband's neck. You shan't, Teddy, you shan't. You will be killed. He's a prize-fighter. I'll prize-fight him. He struggles vainly to free himself from her embrace. Henry, don't let him fight you. Promise me that you won't. I have got a most frightful bump on the back of my head. He tries to rise. Reaching out her left hand to seize his coat-tail and pulling him down again, while keeping fast hold of Teddy with the other hand. Not until you have promised. Not until you both have promised. Teddy tries to rise. She pulls him back again. Teddy, you promise, don't you? Yes, yes. Be good. You promise. I won't, unless he takes it back. He will. He does. You take it back, Henry. Yes. Yes, I take it back. She lets go his coat. He gets up. So does Teddy. I take it all back. All, without reserve. On the carpet. Is nobody going to help me up? They each take a hand and pull her up. Now won't you shake hands and be good? I shall do nothing of the sort. I have steeped myself in lies for your sake, and the only reward I get is a lump on the back of my head the size of an apple. Now I will go back to the straight path. Henry, for heaven's sake. It's no use. Your husband is a fool and a brute. What's that, you say? I say you are a fool and a brute, and if you'll step outside with me, I'll say it again. Teddy begins to take off his coat for combat. Those poems were written to your wife, every word of them, and to nobody else. The scowl clears away from Bompus's countenance. Radiant, he replaces his coat. I wrote them because I loved her. I thought her the most beautiful woman in the world, and I told her so over and over again. I adored her, do you hear? I told her that you were a sordid commercial chump, utterly unworthy of her, and so you are. So gratified he can hardly believe his ears. You don't mean it. Yes, I do mean it, and a lot more, too. I asked Mrs. Bumpus to walk out of the house with me, to leave you, to get divorced from you and marry me. I begged and implored her to do it this very night. 
It was our refusal that ended everything between us. Looking very disparagingly at him. What she can see in you, goodness only knows. Beaming with remorse. My dear chap, why didn't you say so before? I apologize. Come, don't bear malice. Shake hands. Make him shake hands, Rory. For my sake, Henry. After all, he's my husband. Forgive him. Take his hand. Henry, dazed, lets her take his hand and place it in Teddy's, shaking it heartily. You've got to own that none of your literary heroines can touch my Rory. He turns to her and claps her with fond pride on the shoulder. Eh, hey, Rory, they can't resist you. None of 'em. Never knew a man yet that could hold out three days. Don't be foolish, Teddy. I hope you were not really hurt, Henry. She feels the back of his head. He flinches. Oh, poor boy! What a bump! I must get some vinegar and brown paper. She goes to the bell and rings. Will you do me a great favor, Apjohn? I hardly like to ask, but it would be a real kindness to us both. What can I do? Taking up the poems. Well, may we get these printed? It shall be done in the best style, the finest paper, sumptuous binding, everything first class. They're beautiful poems. I should like to show them about a bit. Running back from the bell, delighted with the idea, and coming between them. Oh, Henry, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, oh, I don't mind. I'm past minding anything. I've grown too fast this evening. How old are you, Henry? This morning I was eighteen. Now I am. Oh, confound it! I'm quoting that beast of a play. He takes the Candida tickets out of his pocket and tears them up viciously. What shall we call the volume? To Aurora or something like that, eh? I should call it. How he lied to her husband. End of how he lied to her husband.